0: It began as badly as it could have for the North American Soccer League with a forest of empty seats and the silence of a tomb. But it grew. At first very slowly. Then with an explosion. With a great new stadium jammed with more than 77,000 people. With a detonation of sound that sent the message echoing across the Meadowlands of New Jersey. The message was clear. Big time soccer had come to America. The time was now. How did it happen? Well, first of all, no single man has ever had the impact on the growth of a sport in a great country that Edson Arantes' Nascimento did. This medium-sized black man from Brazil, known to the world as Pelé, had retired after the greatest career in the history of soccer. He was perhaps the best-known person in the world outside the United States, honored by kings and presidents, an athlete and artist, with an extra dimension of warmth and excitement that drew people towards him. He was born in a village named Free Hearts, and there were times when he seemed to possess that many himself in terms of energy and emotion. This was the day of his final game, and this, his final goal a lightning thrust from a direct free kick that typifies his entire career. Pele. The period in which he played for the cosmos of the North American Soccer League from June 15, 1975 to the day you're witnessing here his final game on October 1st, 1977. Pele's American career marks the arrival of soccer as an American spectator sport after so many false starts. A soft rain fell that final day. Many tears fell too. Pele had accomplished his mission to America. He had established the sport and brought credibility to the North American Soccer League. But then one day, Pele went away, and the North American Soccer League was on its own. But not quite on its own. Pele had left a legacy of several million young Americans hooked on this football game that really is played with the foot. Male and female, short and tall, black and white and all shades in between, they were the new missionaries and Pele had left something else. A new professionalism in American soccer, spiced with great names from overseas, drawn to the new world by the promise of riches, yes, but also by the fact that the master had been here, and therefore it must be all right. From Germany came Franz Beckenbauer, scoring now for the Cosmos. But passing, too, setting up Italy's Giorgio Canaglia in an international display that drew crowds everywhere. There were others. England's Rodney Marsh now pledged to the people of Tampa Bay, Florida as captain of the Rowdies. Georgie Best, the stormy petrol of British soccer, was cleared just last week by the International Federation to play for Fort Lauderdale. North of the border, Bob Leonarduzzi, a Canadian of Italian parentage, leads to division champion Vancouver Whitecaps. From the dark continent comes the dark, darting figure of Ace Netsalenge, the African bride of Minnesota and the Americans are coming too. Alan Mayer, the San Diego goalkeeper, was voted American of the Year last season. While Shep Messing, a Harvard man, makes headlines as spectacular as his saves. And all of them dream of this, the moment of victory in the Soccer Bowl, the league's championship game. The long season has already begun and will continue until Soccer Bowl 79 in early September. ABC Sports will be following that story with live game coverage starting May 12th, and today with a look at the league and its stars, with the story from Pele to Diego Pesa, the American rookie phenom. From Phil Woosnam, the league's one and only commissioner, to Dr. Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State, now Chairman of the Board of the NASL. Soccer American style. The time has come. Welcome to Good Seats Still
1: Available a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, how's it going, everybody? Uh, My name is Tim Hanlon, as our uh, dulcet-toned announcer, Corey Coates, has just said, and uh, you have stumbled across, uh, either by, uh, by chance or by design, our little journey into sports history. We call it Good Seats Still Available. Yes, that little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports, thank you very much uh, for giving us a listen, giving us a spin on your device uh, and uh, putting us in your earbuds and into your ears uh, for some uh, hopefully enjoyable listening. And uh, if you are a fan of the old North American Soccer League for the late 60s, most of the all of the 1970s and the early part of the 1980s, uh, this will be a treat for you. If you are just curious about this league uh, where you may have heard some stories or perhaps maybe follow a team, say, in Major League Soccer uh, that has a name that uh, actually uh, began from the North American soccer league, let's say, I don't know, the Seattle Sounders or the Vancouver Whitecaps or Portland Timbers or San Jose Earthquakes, et cetera, Uh, then this uh, will also be uh, an interesting uh, excursion, an audio excursion for you as well. Our guest uh, this week is Ian Plenderleaf, and uh, his book, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, is... The most uh, enjoyable, fun-filled, and uh, frankly, astonishing read that you will probably undertake uh, if you are a fan of said league. It is called Rock and Roll Soccer, and we'll talk about why it's titled that uh, in, our, in our conversation. Uh, it's subtitled The Short Life and Fast Times of the North American Soccer League. And of course, uh, the NASL continues to uh, be a fascination for uh, folks who will remember it uh, from uh, from the early days, as well as a whole new generation of soccer fans. Who hear about it uh, in passing reference in uh, relation to, say, Major League Soccer, which, uh, you know, over the years has uh, at once embraced, you know, again, with some of the uh, names of the teams and going back into the history. And at the same time, also has uh, often rebuffed uh, its relationship or its connection to uh, the uh, previous go round, shall we say, of professional soccer uh, in the United States, which is understandable. You know, if you're setting up this league coming out of the World Cup in 94, you want to sort of get off the off the schneid uh, with uh, the, your best foot or feet forward, shall we say, uh, in 96 when you're starting up Major League Soccer. You know, you don't necessarily want to embrace perhaps what uh, was uh, seen to be a, a uh, an absolute failure by the mid-1980s in its uh, continuation of professional soccer in this country. But look, the, re- the reality is that Prior to its demise in 1984, the NASL, we talked about this in one of our previous episodes with Dennis Seath uh, as well, and we've also alluded to it in some of our other soccer conversations. You know, the the NASL was, uh, you know, the foundational uh, attempt uh, to get modern uh, professional soccer uh, going here in the United States, and, you know, there was uh, certainly a fallow time from you know, the mid 1980s until the World Cup again in, in the mid 1990s, here in this country. But uh, you know, without the exploits of some of these amazing players, I mean Pele, of course, Franz Beckenbauer, and the Carlos Albertos of the world, of course, the Rodney Marshes. But you know, there were there's a whole host of players uh, that came over from from England and Europe and, and South America uh, that uh, truly kicked the United States in the butt, so to speak, in this uh, this thing called soccer. Uh, that um, frankly, most uh, fans in this country had no idea about, and uh, it energized a, a whole generation of people, uh, not necessarily fully aware or knowledgeable of the sport or the game, uh, the nuances of such. But it certainly had an effect, and and to not uh, think that the seeds of interest of the sport did did not sprout and grow into uh, adults who are uh, you know now interested or become more interested in the sport, and and frankly. You know, without the NASL, I don't think MLS exists, right? And uh, the the next attempt to bring professional soccer, and frankly, from some of the lessons learned, uh, into uh, this country. And, and we can debate, uh, as certainly the U.S. soccer presidency conclave over the last uh, week or so certainly brought to uh, the fore, uh, we can debate whether how successful, quote-unquote, Major League Soccer is in this country. Um, it's undeniable that it is, uh, you know, it is, it is uh, a stable and a very uh, well-thought-out uh, business plan for sustaining the sport here in this country. Um, we can debate the quality of it, of course. We can debate the uh, the relative uh, competitiveness of the teams, uh, both within themselves in the league as well as uh, on the international front and its success or, or lack thereof on the international stage, uh, i.e. the World Cup, et cetera. But there's there's no mistaking that Major League Soccer is a very stable and uh, part of the American sports culture. Uh, does it have a ways to go? No doubt. Uh, but look, you've got teams and, and a league that has existed now for over 20 years. Uh, and that's uh, certainly saying something, especially when you compare it to things like the NASL. And that is our conversation today with Ian Plenderleaf. Uh, there's no shortage of stories, uh, curiosities, uh, and just downright uh, unbelievable little exploits that the NASL brought about to, to this country. And... Uh, Ian Plenderleith will uh, regale us with some of those uh, in his journey into writing this book, Rock and Roll Soccer, uh, in just a couple of seconds. So please stay tuned. I think you'll find it informative and enjoyable as, uh, as I did. Let's see. A couple of uh, things to get out of the way uh, procedurally besides our, our promotional stuff. And uh, we always talk about our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, of course. And you can uh, get all kinds of uh, memorabilia and stuff there And uh, at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Don't forget to use the promo code GOODSEATS. Uh, for 15% off your purchases, of course. Uh, We love our friends at Audible, right? The audiobook monstrosity, that is, uh, over 180,000 titles, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And that's the place, of course, where you can get a free audiobook download and a free one-month trial of the service. And of course, you can cancel at any time. But beyond some of those sort of commerce things, and we appreciate your checking those both out and uh, hopefully giving us a little scratch to keep the podcast going, uh, we also encourage you, please, by all means, to go rate and review us, Uh, you'd be surprised at how important uh, those ratings and reviews are wherever you get podcasts, but in in particular on iTunes and or Apple Podcasts. It seems to change every week. I don't know what it is these days, but however you Appleize, shall we say, your podcast listening, uh, we encourage you and appreciate your putting uh, some kind words in the little uh, suggestion boxes there about uh, how much you love this show. Uh, and if you wanna make it up, fine, but it helps the algorithms and it gets us uh, discovered more and recommended. And uh, if you really wanna do a good deed and you're just uh, too cheap to uh, spend something with our sponsors, well, here's a great way for uh, for very little money, actually none, just a, a couple of bits of your bandwidth, uh, just to go to uh, iTunes and or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else for that matter, and give us a nice rating or review. We appreciate it. And we want to thank some of the people who have done that already. Uh, these are not going to mean anything to you, but you you people out there who, who put these comments up there certainly will. So thank you to AVC65 and SMH718. Uh, we thank uh, R. Mandy for his comments or her comments. Uh, Greg from FAFIF, F-A-F-I-F, whatever that means. Uh, And some interesting names, too. George Best Seven, thank you so much. Philadelphia Adam checked in with some nice comments, thank you. And Reed Rock with some very nice commentary uh, just last week. So thank you so much for those reviews. Keep them coming, as we say. And we appreciate and, frankly, benefit from them. So please continue to do so. Uh, early and often, as they say. Okay, got that all out of the way. Thanks very much for sticking through that, and uh, let's get to our very fun and interesting conversation with uh, with Ian Plenderleith. He, the author of Rock and Roll Soccer: The Short Life and Fast Times of the North American Soccer League. As always, please enjoy. Well, I am uh, I am enormously uh, thankful for uh, for your time. I uh, I've tremendously enjoyed your book uh, from a couple of years ago, and uh, <clears throat> I think it is the quintessential tome uh, in many respects. Not just historically, but uh, just uh, the zeitgeist. I think of this uh, wild and crazy North American soccer league that, as a kid uh, growing up in the uh, northern New Jersey area, I was uh, frankly uh, just spoiled with uh, being a Cosmos fan and going to games. I guess from 1977 onward which is kind of I guess the, the the true heyday of it but um but looking back over the years you know uh this thing obviously didn't start with uh a gentleman by the name of Pele coming in 1975 middle of the season you know things were obviously uh growing and, uh, and festering and and uh, building up into something uh, significant and um you know b- before we sort of got to the uh, the craziness I guess of this league Uh, A lot more was sort of in in play prior to. Uh, I'm really curious, just uh, maybe as a starting point, um, where you're coming from uh, with this story. What is your sort of association or attachment to this story, perhaps both professionally and then just as a topic, uh, to uh, pursue in in glowing detail uh, in this book? Well,
2: there are uh, are a lot of reasons why I was interested in the North American Soccer League and why I wrote this book, which sounds odd because I grew up far away from it uh, in the 1970s, um, 3,000 or 4,000 miles away from it in England. But in England, we were aware of it because, of course, a lot of English players went over and played there. And there was a lot of coverage of them in ASL in the British press and even on the uh, soccer programs on TV. And I did—I I got a, a magazine at the time called Soccer Monthly, which only lived for a couple of years. Uh, very, it was a very intelligent magazine, uh, which made it stand out from the other publications. And they wrote a lot of pieces about the NASL. They were very curious about the developments in America, and they followed a lot of players over there to see how they were getting on and what it was all about. So that's when I first became aware of the interesting uh, jerseys and uniforms, the fact that they played on plastic fields, all the uh, razzmatazz that was going on around the game. There were always pictures of cheerleaders printed next to these articles, which as a a 12-year-old boy was, of course, of some uh, interest to me. And um, it was just seemed slightly surreal to us that there was – that the Americans who we traditionally thought had nothing to do with with soccer and didn't know anything about the game, that they were making this rather weird attempt uh, at establishing a league. Now, of course, uh, in in my my youth, uh, the NASL died and went away and I forgot about it. But then several years later, uh, in my 30s, I moved to the United States uh, and to Washington, D.C. with my family and uh my job was basically uh being stay at home dad to my two young daughters. I was also working as a soccer coach uh, as a referee and as a freelance journalist and writer about about soccer. And uh, one of the jobs I had for for a while was working for the uh, us soccer players website uh, the the um, uh, organ- the union for the for the national team players. and uh, I would occasionally write uh, history features about uh, various past aspects of us soccer. And what always uh, fascinated me about us soccer was that people said we well, doesn't really have a history. Um, but I think it. I think it does. And I think uh, what I wanted to do in reconstructing um, my book about the NASL was to 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 point to a really important chapter in U.S. soccer history. Not just because it it, it formed the basis for for what has come since, but also because it had, uh, the NASL, I feel, had a huge influence on the global game because it was one of the first uh, really was the first league to be like a truly international setup um, maybe unwittingly but it was if you look at the premier league and the champions league now and the multinational makeup of, of, of the teams that are competing at the top of the game and the whole emphasis on brands and marketing and entertainment, to me, that's 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 all mirrored uh, in what happened in the NASL in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies. Now, as I say, I, I used to write the odd history piece, and I came across uh, I think the, the the first thing about the NASL that really reawakened my curiosity was the. Team USA, uh, which played in the NASL in 1983, and uh, I was totally intrigued by the idea of the U.S. national team being allowed to play in the U.S. domestic league. So I wrote a piece about that, and then I also uh, bought a copy of Colin uh, Jose's uh, NASL statistics book. Uh, from eBay at, at, at some expense, no,
1: it's and a, it's the Bible, right? You know, it's the, uh, the the Dead Sea Scrolls of the North American Soccer League, right?
2: It, it is. It's a beautiful book to browse through, and I've been browsing through it again today, and you just come across new things every time you look in it. And for statistics geeks, it's 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 a it's a it's a great uh, compendium of everything every goal and every kick that, that happened in the NASL. And looking through this book, I realized how many teams there were and how they moved around. And there were so many players that I recognized from my from my youth in the 70s and play, players like not just the big names but sort of uh, – Players from 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 the lower leagues in England, whose names I knew, like uh, Alan Woodward or uh, Trevor Wymark, who who were first division players, but they weren't massive massive stars on an international uh, scheme. And players like Jeff Crudgington, who I'd seen play uh, in, for Crew Alexandra uh, against my home team Lincoln City in the English fourth division. Just and, it, it just uh, it, it, it it really woke up the, the the soccer geek in me to thinking there must be so many stories to be. Told Told from this league. Now I know that the uh, uh, the narrative at that time was well the story of the NASL was just the story of the cosmos and I did read the book uh, Once in a Lifetime which I thought was a good book. Uh, I did see the movie Once in a Lifetime which I thought was not such a great uh, portrayal of an entire league and I think that's, that movie set out to describe a story that it decided in advance that the, movie, the, the, the league was all about Uh, sex and drugs and decadence and the Cosmos and everybody having a crazy time and taking drugs and going to Studio 54 and hanging out with Andy Warhol and Mick Jagger and to me that was a very simplistic uh, retelling of the league's story and as I came to discover when I talked with a lot of the ex-Cosmos players it wasn't at all an accurate story and of course it ignores the entire uh, fascinating story of how the league built itself up the other teams in places uh, as far apart, uh, you know, it was a coast-to-coast league. So there were teams, a uh, huge soccer culture founded in the Pacific Northwest through the NASL. Um, team, Very successful teams in L.A., in Florida, in, in, in Fort Lauderdale, and Temp- and the Tampa Bay Rowdies, of course. Uh, the phenomenon of the Minnesota Kicks and uh, the, the interesting story of how many teams came and went in, in Washington, D.C., as well. Well, those are just some of the the, the, the uh, narrative arcs which I think were completely neglected, and and that's why I wanted to, um, to write a book which wasn't necessarily a comprehensive game by game or season by season history of the NASL, but I wanted to tell the story of what I think it symbolized uh, in, in U.S. soccer history.
1: Well, no, and um, I I totally uh, agree with sort of the sentiment, right? I mean, indeed, a lot I think a lot of sort of. Um, you know, passive observers, I guess, uh, or, or or memorists uh, certainly remember the cosmos. They remember Pele, right? But you know, they seem to sort of forget sort of these other things. And and we we have to remember that by what 1978. You know, this was a league that had 24 franchises, right? Which is, you know, probably the beginning of the end of its un you know the beginning of its undoing, right? For for various reasons, which we can probably get into in a, in a few minutes. But um, you know, th- there were players streaming in from all over. Especially Europe, certainly a little bit of South America, uh, and some of the quality of the play was uh, was 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 quite intriguing. And you had some of the world's best players, uh, aging or otherwise, uh, here on these shores. I think um, you know, we look back in sort of our respective youths, we may not have um, necessarily uh, appreciated maybe until till later on, kind of some of the, just the the talent and the uh, the excitement. Uh, you know, in in many respects. You know, that excitement wasn't necessarily something that was found, let's say, in what was, you know, the precursor to the English Premier League or the top division in in, in England. Right. What I what I sort of have, have sensed from various conversations and and uh, folks that we've had on our show, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most um, vibrant time, I guess, say, in British or uh, uh, soccer in Europe. And here was this sort of NASL flashily doing it differently. And uh, I got to think that it was flickering. Onto your television sets and, and through your uh, through your magazines in a sort of very colorful and uh, distinctive way by comparison.
2: That, that, that's right, and the, 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 it's a very interesting parallel. Uh, certainly retrospectively, when you do you contrast uh, the 70s game in europe and britain and britain compared with uh, what people were trying to do in in the us i've been critic- the book of my book has been criticized for painting too gray a picture of the 1970s in britain but that's merely uh, the way I remember it now. I'm, of course, I was a huge soccer fan at the time, and and, and watched every game I could, and went to games with, with my with my dad, and uh, was watched all the highlights programs that were on at that time. Um, but if you uh, looking at it uh, more analytically now, it's easy to see why attendances were going down in Britain. Uh, the standard of play uh, was. was technically high but the way the game was being played was becoming more and more negative and more geared towards uh, getting results and a lot of the flair players at the time came over to the u.s because they felt they were being basically kicked out and fouled out of the english game uh, players like george best and and uh, frank worthington and and rodney marsh and they they came to the u.s saying it's it's you know Obviously, a lot of them were quite open about the fact they were coming for better contracts and good pay and a different lifestyle. Um, but that all tied into the fact that there was this perception that, that England had become a very grey uh, country and that the, this uh, on the field uh, negativity was also. Uh, backed up by the the violence that was going on around the game uh, in terms of supporters and that was something that you you cannot deny looking back on had had a really negative offence uh, influence on attendances and um, just made a lot of football grounds and stadiums, which had not been renovated in, in any way for decades, had really unpleasant, uh, nasty, vitriolic places to be. So the game was still surviving, but it was, it was taking a severe battering, and it wasn't until uh, the 1980s and uh, the various uh, terrible stadium tragedies that woke people up. That the game was able to to take stock of itself and take a long hard look at itself and say we need to we need to to reform and find out what's what's gone wrong and, and how we can uh, make things right again. So, uh, so, so again, going back to my perception of America in the seventies, we, we we used to it's it's funny how little news you got back then. Uh, you, your your media was limited, so our perceptions of America were. Basically down to to Stasky and Hutch and the Fonz and Kojak and all the American TV shows and occasional music videos we would see on top of the pops and um, this this was uh, so it had this uh, really exotic still very foreign feel to it and and and, and certainly uh, the, the sense that there was something extra special about the U.S., which I think was probably what attracted a lot of uh, British players to go over there. A lot of the British players I talked to said they had never been to America. They didn't know what to expect. Some of them had not been in, even traveled outside of England before. And they suddenly arrived in this land. And this, it's going back to when the league started in, in the nineteen uh, late 1960s. They were just absolutely bowled over by the possibilities and space and, uh, for want of a, a better word, just uh, the freedom they suddenly found themselves in, being unknown in, in a different country and, and having this this new opportunity, uh, some of them quite late in their careers, suddenly opened up for them. They were very grateful for that.
1: Yeah, we had a, uh, we've had a we had a few folks um, uh, with that. So Clyde Best was a guest. We had uh, Bobby Moffitt, uh, ex of the uh, Dallas Tornadoes, uh, all sort of regaling in some of those uh in some of those stories and it was it was definitely a, a different sort of world um not only in terms of uh, uh opportunity and and excitement and and being able to sort of play the game in a more sort of uh i guess definitively offensive and exciting style but frankly also uh the relative uh, uh arid land shall we say about the the knowledge of the sport of soccer in this country right so uh you know the fans maybe took to the players and and, and sort of this new sort of idea and concept and game. But uh, clearly, uh, we're not talking about um, uh, a huge uh, population in the United States, aside maybe from some uh, ethnic enclaves and and a handful, including myself, of course, uh, of of white suburban kids who were, you know, rattling around this game. Um, Mm -hmm. Soccer is pretty much a foreign, quote-unquote, sport uh, at that time. And and in many respects, I think you talk to some of these old players who were playing at that time, uh, it almost felt messianic, right? In terms of, or missionary. In terms of their uh, of what they started to recognize fairly quickly is that they were teaching the game to people, uh, both by their play yeah, and their yeah. and their activities.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and they and what a lot of them appreciated was that it, it gave them an in for their post career because they would found themselves. Suddenly, having to be articulate, they suddenly had to explain the game for the first time in their lives, and they were being sent out as part of their contrast to do clinics in public, to do uh, to go to sports classes in schools to demonstrate the game. And as you say, messianic, they were evangelizing about the game. They were saying, "Look, this is this is what it is, and 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 what it, it consists of." So they were uh, a lot of them were set up, helped them set themselves up for coaching careers. Many, many players stayed on in the U.S. And made uh, and, and had careers as coaches, or started up their own coaching schools. And many of them found that they went into sort of communications jobs as well. And that was helped by the fact that they uh, they came to the US and were were able to. Found a voice for themselves, and and I know from my own personal experience coming to the U.S. as as, uh, as a typical sort of um, introverted, uh, slightly repressed European, that you find the American personality often infectious. So people just come up and start talking to you and maybe telling you their entire life story in half an hour and you never see them again, uh, there's maybe something superficial about that, but there's also something really charming about it. And and being back in Europe, I, I, can't, I kind of miss that approach to, to conversation, to openness, and, and sometimes find that um, you know I have to break myself in Europe because I just start talking and babbling on, and I and that's something that uh, I, I maybe picked up in the U.S. But going back to to the early days of the of the NASL, you're talking about um, uh, these uh, a few soccer hotbeds, but basically the the U.S. was in ignorance of soccer, and I think that um, if you look at places like Atlanta and uh, Dallas for example, where soccer started from scratch with teams, and they, they were those were clubs that really sent their players out, uh, English-speaking players out, to, to um, do their best to publicize and promote the game. And you see, you see in, in, in those two areas, uh, there's a massive um, soccer-playing strongholds now with hundreds of thousands of kids play soccer in 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 the suburbs and in the cities like if, every weekend and, and all that goes back to to the educative principles uh, of, of the nasl and, and and its foundation as a teaching base to to try and bring the game to America
1: all right let's step back for a second so you you you're here in the states and you finally sort of recognize that the the nasl story the narrative perhaps as it probably should be told versus what was uh, in limited form out there already. Uh, what was your thought process as to how to approach uh, creating this narrative and then sort of the process by which you uh, constructed the pieces? Like, did you did, were there natural folks that you wanted to reach out to first? Was there uh, folks that you already had connection to? How did you decide to sort of uh, wrap your your head around sort of the story and then sort of how to tackle it?
2: I I had a a list. I had a co-author to start with um, who's my former colleague at U.S. soccer players, uh, Jay Hutchison. And he he had to regrettably drop out of the project fairly early on because uh, he just couldn't fit the time in with his day job. Um, But we came up together with a list of of chapters um, and themes we thought that were really um, pertinent to the NASL. Um, And um, that... Original list pretty much stayed uh, uh, the way it was, bar one or two additions and dropping one or two slightly too ambitious uh, uh, topics. Pretty much stayed the way it was until until I finished the book. Um, now, where I got very lucky was uh, through a contact and was was uh, meeting up with Dick uh, Cecil, who was the uh, one of the early executives at the Atlanta Chiefs when the, when the team was founded. Now he was a young man at the time, so most of the owners and uh, team executives and administrators from the founding years of the league, unfortunately no longer around. But Dick, um, very, uh, uh, very grateful to him. He invited me down to Atlanta for an interview and gave me a tremendous insight, insight into how the league um, started up and, and what the, uh, how the, its founding fathers had first been uh, inspired by the 1966 World Cup. Uh, in England, and the full stadiums and the cheering crowds and the and, and, and the action from those games. Now, uh, that may make it sound like they were real soccer lovers. In fact, they were all businessmen, and what they were looking at was the crowd, and what they were thinking of was, how can we fill our new baseball and football stadiums on the nights and days when there are no games? So they looked at soccer as a, as a, a revenue generator, quite... Uh, unromantically. Now, Dick himself really got into the game. He, he loved it and still does. Um, but but uh, the, this kind of, the conversation did bring it home to me that the America in the 60s was still actually a relatively open market in terms of sports. So the, the, the guys who were trying to bring soccer into the stadiums were, were not really um, encroaching. On on the other sports, although baseball was severely risk, resistant to 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 soccer coming to the US, but it um, it did kind of bring it home to me that you know at that, that time it was still an open field. Anything could have happened. It could it could easily have caught on um, uh, much quicker than it actually did. But in fact, uh, the the early years of the league, um, 1967, there were actually two rival leagues. That uh, realized at the end of a the year they were going to have to merge if they had any chance of survival. 1968 was the first year of the NASL proper, and immediately was um, had to after the end of that season, several of the owners dropped out. It went down from 17 teams in 1968 to just five teams in 1969. So the league almost died several times before way before the era of, of Warner brothers and Pele and, and the glamorous years of the 1970s. And it was only through the hard work of, uh, Phil Woosnam who, who Dick Cecil had, had got into be the, uh, player coach of the Atlanta chiefs that, uh, he took over as commissioner of the NASL and really, really worked hard for years, um, to get new owners and new investors and persuade them that soccer was, was, was had a future in America. Um, so, uh, what was your original question, Tim? I don't know quite now how I've I've, no, I've twisted that.
1: No, that's <laughs> that's really I mean, I'm, the fact that you you stumbled across Phil Wisdom, right, is obviously the patron saint of 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 soccer in this country, professionally, um, and and obviously the North American Soccer League in particular. So, you know, when you talk about sort of those dark days, I mean, literally going down to five teams, and I think even after that season, it was it was four for a couple of weeks, and. Uh, and through the dogged efforts of of folks like Phil and Dick Cecil and, and some others, um, sort of kept it alive and and sort of resuscitated. I think many people um, sort of think that that the NASL really kind of started, if you will, with the arrival of Pele in June of 1975, right? And you're obviously speaking to obviously the years prior to that. We had our, uh, our guest uh, two weeks ago, Dennis Cease, uh, who wrote a who wrote a book the, the talking about specifically the. Uh, the beginnings, actually there were three groups of businessmen that actually whittled down to two and the sort of crazy story of, of how, you know, uh, people seeing dollar signs before understanding even how a soccer ball was even kicked uh, before, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the disaster basically that uh, was on the beginnings of, of the reincarnation of the sport here. But, um but I think, you know, you look at 75, of course, and Pele's arrival, and that was obviously a white hot comet uh, of activity and brought a ton of attention, but, you know if, if to the, to the educated eye right there were a bunch of interesting things that were happening in a hand the handful of years prior to that right number 1 i suspect was the actual cosmos being born right which was something that occurred in 1971 very you know very quietly and very sort of subtly uh that mm-hmm. the sort of big thing and i think number 2 you you have to look back at you know uh, 1974 right where you know, you actually had I think it was six, uh, if not more, uh, brand new franchises, you know, p- places yeah, like Jose yeah. and 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 those kinds of places. So even before Pele's arrival, now whether whether you would argue that the the uh, the legwork was sort of you know being set or, or being started prior, uh, things were in motion uh, to kind of really take it to the next level after a near death experience in that sort of uh, first couple of years of of the seventies, no?
2: Yeah, it's it's intriguing to think what might have happened to the league if Pele had not been signed, because Muizum was bringing it onto a, a level keel, and 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 he had cut back uh, budgets. Teams had become very realistic in the early seventies. They, they shortened the seasons. Um, they had European teams come in to sort of play some games against uh, the NASL teams to to. Eke out the fixture list a little bit and add a bit of variety. Um, they would get a lot of players in from uh, hard-up English sides or Yugoslav sides on on cheap cheap short summer contracts, and a lot of the players were working part time doing coaching as well uh, to make ends meet. So this, the, the the league was suddenly being run on a realistic shoestring budget, but with his. Uh, optimism and his persuasive powers, he managed, as you say, by 1974 to get enough investors on board that the league started to look uh, viable again. And I come to to the conclusion in the book that, well, it's possible that the, the league might have survived a lot longer if it hadn't been for the Cosmos and Pele because all of a sudden it went back to the trend of throwing throwing money at the game and every team trying to get its own Pele-like superstar. Uh, on the other hand, if, if um, that had not happened, the league may have died as well and we probably wouldn't be talking about it today because it wouldn't really have been so interesting except maybe to a few sports academics. So anyway – it's, that's, that is an academic question because, of course, the Cosmos did sign Pele and it was one of the big, huge uh, soccer stories uh, of, of the 70s. And it, it radically changed the league overnight because were, all of a sudden there was massive amounts of coverage, including from the international press. And that's when, for example, the English press really, really started to take notice of the game. And the way that... Uh, English press, for example, was interested in in, in the U.S. game. It was quite interesting because it was, it was the usual amount of European condescension, like, "Well, <laughs> this is America; they'll only they'll only muck it up. They don't understand soccer it's still, anyway." It's
1: still going on, by the way, but that's okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And it was also a certain amount of, of fear as well, because everyone realized the potential of America, the huge wealth and the huge population, and that if America did decide to to really adopt soccer and invest a lot of money in it and they they would maybe not be a chance for any other team in the future to win the world Cup because America with this Infinite resources would, would maybe become the, the, this massive power, and that would steamroll everybody else. And and of course, there was the, the endless discussions about the rule changes, um, the, the various rule innovations. We should say that the NASL had in the seventies, which also caused a lot of raised eyebrows and consternation among the the uh, the, the British uh, snobs and the uh, the FIFA uh, barons. Who did not like being told by upstart Yanks what to do, how how the best way to to run a football match was?
1: Well, let's 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 talk about that for a second because I think that's actually a pretty interesting uh, uh, piece of of history of the NASL, and frankly, uh, it it buttresses a, a couple of your themes as you as as you go through the book. Um, what of those uh, scoring incentives in the standings and the thirty five yard line and 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 to some extent, even the idea of having three North American players on the field, uh, and sudden death and shootouts and all those kinds of things, um, you know, I, I, clearly to the purist, uh, that looks a bit uh, a bit wild and and uh, completely uh, non traditional. But when you're also trying to sell a quote unquote foreign sport uh, to the American populace, um, who you know doesn't necessarily appreciate the subtleties of a uh, closely uh, uh, you know, uh, contested one nil, uh, uh, you know, game. Uh, some of them can be exciting, but a lot of times, frankly, are not. Uh, and uh, you know, how do you, how do you sort of, how do you put that all together and recognize that uh, that might not have been a bad thing, frankly, given the uh, brand new virgin territory that the United States was.
2: Now, of course, in the U.S. and a lot of the U.S. owners. Uh, didn't care about FIFA, didn't really know who FIFA were. And their concern, as you say, was to sell the game to the American public. So naturally, they looked on. They looked for incentives to make the game more exciting, to make it more entertaining. The idea of sport in America is to entertain the paying customer. The idea of sport in, in Britain at the time was that you went to the game, you might get, clobbered by a policeman, you might get clobbered by an opposition fan, you would probably have some disgusting food that would make you feel ill afterwards, and your team might play to a nil-nil draw that would make you even more miserable than you were feeling before you set out on a rainy afternoon. So there were two different cultures at play here, but what was actually happening out on the field, it wasn't as if soccer in America was an unrecognizable sport, it was basically in almost every respect, the same game. So the the outcry from Europe about, oh, the Americans are messing with our game and how dare they uh, award six points for a win and how dare they encourage more scoring and that kind of thing was just uh, poppycock, quite frankly, because... And there was, it was it was still the same game, and it was just an attempt to to recognise that it was being aimed at a different audience. So, for um, American uh, administrators at the time, it was the the whole conversation was pretty much irrelevant. Now, of course, they came into conflict conflict with FIFA, for example, over the 30, the thirty five yard. Off sideline, which FIFA allowed them to experiment with for I think uh, six or six or seven years, it's one of those things that you, you you watch games on on video now. Old games with the thirty-five yard line. And it seems to me that the game was quite a little bit more stretched out for it. There was a little bit more space for the players. But it's very hard to argue one way or another whether it made a huge amount of difference to the standard of play or whether it made the games more exciting. You can uh, definitely argue that the, the points approach, six points for a win, three points for a tie, but also a point per goal scored up to three, whether you won or lost the game or not. Um, a lot of people I spoke to said that was that was a good incentive for attacking soccer, and and uh, a lot of the, the statistics, if you look at some of the score lines, they certainly back that up. Also, the whole philosophy of of the league was to encourage attacking soccer, and that was reflected in the signings that the league made. That, that a lot of the teams. Sought to bring in entertaining players. They sought to bring in characters, partly to help with publicity, to to get coverage of the game, to show, look, we bought this guy from England and he's nuts. He, you know, he drops his trousers to the referee and snorts cocaine in the club at night, like Paul Canell uh, did for the Washington Diplomats, Both mm-hmm. of those things. Um, but uh, at the same time, it was it was it was, uh, it was a game. It was only a game, right? You wanted you wanted people to be interested in the game, so there has to be things happening on the field. And I think that's something that, that eventually came to be realised in in Europe too. That uh, the, the, this period in the eighties we had of negative tactics and the Italians playing for the one nil win or the nil nil draw was just absolutely destroying soccer and, and turning people off the game in in on that among several other factors. So uh, good for the NASL in, in thinking on its feet and, and thinking of in innovations and a lot of things that they thought of. Uh, I mean, eventually in Europe we went from two points for a win to three points for a win. Again, it's arguable if that has made any difference to make the game more attacking, but it is something the NASL thought of first and which was adopted later um, three substitutions for example in the 1970s the NASL had three substitutes when in Europe there were only two and the FIFA objected to that well why what's wrong with why not three substitutes instead of two what's this very seems to be an almost arbitrary number now of course the standard is is three substitute uh the nasl was one of the first uh, leagues to look into abolishing the back direct back pass to the goalkeeper that the goalkeeper could pick up with his hands and um it didn't actually happen in the nasl but it was discussed and looked at very closely because it was seen as boring well that happened in the early 1990s fifa adopted that as an international law there was the idea of player numbers and players names on shirts to help fans identify the player's Seems like a very logical thing, but it also took the uh, international game a long time to copy the NASL on, on that front as well so although there were a few crazy things there were a few people who wanted to abolish offside and make the goals bigger and make the posts bigger so that you know the the ball would rebound back on all these things were discussed but they were not implemented because people realized that was that was taking things too far but a lot of the innovations that that the nasl uh, put into place turned turned out to be quite logical and sensible ways of making the game a, a slightly more watchable phenomenon
1: All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com/goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com/goodseats for your free one month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Boehmer. And it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, aka the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now. And uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is uh, as clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis. Uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and... Back to our conversation. In your conversations with the players, uh, and the ones that I've had uh, thus far in our little podcast journey here, um, it almost seemed to be like they relished all these changes and 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 dynamics and stuff. I'm sure some were a bit bewildered and or flummoxed by them, but. Um, I guess I'd love to know sort of in your in your interviews and as you're putting together the book did what um, was most of the um, uh, the memory, I guess, uh, of the players that you talked to uh, that of fondness and or um, of enjoying their sort of at least on field uh, exploits, despite all these rules changes and, um, you know, versus, say, uh, not really, you know, being a fish out of water and, and not really adjusting appropriately.
2: Yeah yeah and I think that one of the things they enjoyed most was the which I forgot to mention a minute ago was the the shootouts that uh, settled tied games sure. and the 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 NHL started out with um I think they started out with sudden death overtime in the playoff games and uh, that had to be scrapped one one game went to 176 minutes and I think it was in 1971 between the uh, the Dallas and the Rochester Lancers, <laughs> and all the players like collapsed on the ground in relief when the goal was finally scored. So then they went to to I think uh, half an hour overtime with penalty kicks, and then eventually I think in the, in the sometime in 1977 they went for the for the shootout, so the th- which was started the same principle as penalty kicks, except it was a player starting out on the 35-yard line and dribbling towards the goalkeeper who could come off his uh, line. And so many players said they thought this was this was a, a fantastic innovation because if it had been like a dull nil-nil draw on a hot evening, at least the fans had that to look forward to at the end. And let's face it, one-on-one situations are always exciting, whether they happen in open play or whether you create them artificially at the end of the game. And they're certainly a little bit more egalitarian than, than the penalty kick where the shooter is, is always favored. The only people who spoke out against that was, was one of the goalkeepers I talked to. I think it was Arne Mauser who said he didn't, he didn't really like them. He actually preferred the penalty kicks. But um, uh, another one or two goalkeepers said it gave them the chance to be a little bit of a hero on the night. And, uh, of course, the, the, the players, and Rodney Marsh, for example, in this typically outspoken fashion, said he thinks that you know, FIFA should have adopted these years ago instead of penalty kicks. And that's one of those things where I think, well, that, that really did like, light up. Crowds, and I think for again for the European soccer establishment, that's just seen as a little bit too over the top, you know. Even though it's a much more even contest between shooter and goalkeeper than the penalty kicks, and possibly a much uh, um, uh, more. And if you like a, a better gauge of a team's soccer skill in the penalty shootout, it's just seen as a bit too a bit too extreme in terms of entertainment. But uh, I would love to see that that introduced and experimented with, at least given a chance to see if, if fans actually like it. Um, the, the the players themselves, I think they 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 relish the the freedom, uh, as you say, to to express themselves more. That's why they enjoy actually playing. In America, and certainly for some of the better players, it was it was a drop in standards, so they were able to shine a little bit better. But some of the some of the, the lesser known players, uh, a couple of the Scottish players I talked to who came over in the early seventies, said they liked the fact that they um, weren't playing in front of the people they grew up with anymore. the, play, the British, uh, English, and Scottish crowds are and could be at that time extremely critical get on your back very quickly and they like the, they like the 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 um, the, the more generous nature of the, I guess, of the less soccer-savvy U.S. crowds, who would be much more forgiving of mistakes and and much more delighted by a little show of skill. And uh, so, in that in that sense, I think for for the players, they, they didn't just enjoy. Uh, a lot of them, the the bigger names also spoke of the freedom off the field of not being recognised in the street anymore. Franz Beckenbauer famously loved. Uh, Living in Manhattan and being able to go out every evening, first of all, without being tailed by the German. Uh, gutter press and secondly by not being recognized by anybody at least not initially so there was uh, the, the, the freedoms um, uh, that came with the NASL correspond I guess to the kind of cliches we had in the 70s about America being this great free country of possibilities um, which which certainly apply in some areas and to some, to some people and the, the, the players, uh, my impression was there were very few players I spoke to who had negative experience at the ASL, it was all, they, they marveled in the nostalgia of looking back at how uh, at the novelty of the whole experience and, and how lucky they were at that time to 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 escape uh, a slightly more oppressive uh, society, for example, like England, and and have this great chance to to, to start anew in, in, a, in a different country.
1: How many of those players do you think kind of saw this as truly a vacation kind of experience? Because, you know, you had a very short uh if you even want to call it a season, April to essentially August, right? So it wasn't sort of a full time endeavor for most of them. Uh, mm-hmm. The opportunity to play year round, uh, while uh, perhaps getting some sun and some uh, uh, some decent pay in addition to their sort of their regular sort of uh, uh, you know playing in in their their home countries. Um, did did you get the sense from these conversations that players saw this as? Uh, you know, as opportunity or as a paycheck or somewhere in between or it did it depend maybe perhaps on on the player and maybe how old and where they're coming?
2: Oh, I, I think both. I think opportunity and paycheck and, and nobody, uh, everyone loves an opportunity but if it comes with a, with an enhanced paycheck, um, a lot of the players I talked to compared their wages and, and, and in America, what they were getting in England or Scotland at the time and America rates, the American rates were much more favorable and I imagine that played a huge role and, and and that also led to players staying on. If you're getting paid enough to allow you to finance a house and um, I guess at some point you may meet a, a local woman that is uh, the kind of thing that's going to allow you to stay on. Uh, Jeff Barnett, the former Arsenal goalkeeper, he still lives in Minnesota I, I spoke to him and he said he met his wife on the Uh, I think it was the Bloomington Strip, it was called, in Minnesota, where all the sports stars used to go and and hang out in the evenings. In fact, he had a very, very funny story he told me about how uh, the players were all assigned to get a a certain kind of car um, from the club, which was a Chevette. And uh, I looked it up online, and it looks like something that was manufactured in, in Albania, maybe around about 1972. <laughs>
1: the antithesis of the luxury car, for sure.
2: <laughs> he went to complain to the club and look, you know, I'm a bit of a bloody celebrity around here now. You know, I don't want to be seen driving this thing and uh, so he found this clause in his contract which said that if he didn't uh, if he didn't if he refused to take the chevette he could get a certain amount of money instead and the next thing he knew that like, the club was organizing to go and see this uh, dealer who got him a volvo so was driving around in a volvo and all the other players like demanding to know what had happened and why he wasn't driving a chevette like the rest of them and i, and I said to him well did you care? He said, "No, I didn't care at all." <laughs> it was, uh, so. There was uh, that kind of illustrates the, the. I think the the shackles a little bit that, that, that they were that were loosened in terms of um, uh, the players' daily lives compared to maybe what they would were, they, were, they were experiencing back in in England.
1: I'd love to sort of segue again into a little bit into uh, some of the other sort of player stories, I guess, that stuck out. I mean, clearly there were. Some more interesting uh, escapades, shall we say? I, you know, Rodney Marsh, who uh, did the forward in your book, uh, recounts a few a few times. I think actually the the, the immediate time when he arrived, uh, that uh, he went to the office, the rowdy's office, and uh, the uh, you know one of the assistants there was uh, working on trying to get two of the players out of jail from a, I guess a uh, an interesting evening the night before. So I'm just curious as to any of the, shall we say, more colorful stories that might have stuck out in your. Uh, in your research journey for this book. clearly, yeah, was- you know,
2: I, I have to confess that when I started out researching the book, I thought there was going to be more of those kind of stories involved. But either players were still a little bit uh, too reluctant to tell the full truth of their days of decadence and dancing in the 1970s, or the other thing I suspect is that there maybe there was – Far less truth in those tales than, than than we were led to believe at the time. So to come back again to the example of the New York Cosmos movies, well, a lot of the former Cosmos players said that movie was ridiculous. It was just Shep Messing and Ben uh shooting their mouths off and exaggerating about how, you know, what incredible... Party times they had, and that they, as professionals, actually went home to Long Island every night, and they would maybe meet in the pub to talk about soccer. But uh, the most most of the time, uh, they suspected that even Carlos Alberto and Franz Beckenbauer were probably an age where they mostly went to bed before before everybody else. So, in terms of uh, that kind of. Um, uh, um, what you say? I guess in, in terms of the sort of police cell kind of stories that you you would expect from the seventies. In the end, I, I realised that that's not really that kind of important to the book because it's it's first of all it's a bit of a, a sensationalist way to look at look at the era. A bit of a cliched way to look at that era. And thirdly, I was no longer convinced after talking to a lot of players that there was even really necessarily that amount of truth in it. Now, there there were the teams in Hawaii and uh, Las Vegas, famously uh, the Las Vegas Quicksilvers, which is a brilliant name for a team that only lasted one year in a place like Las Vegas, um, the teams. The, the, a lot of, I talked to a lot of the players who played in, in, in there in, in 1977 in those two venues, and they said when the visiting teams came, um, they would they would generally rely on them having been out in the town the night before to wilt in the heat the following day, and that would allow them to to uh, to, to take advantage of them on on the soccer field. But uh, unfortunately, if you look at the Las Vegas uh, and Hawaii team records for that year, it doesn't, it's not really backed up by the results, um, although I don't doubt for one minute that people did take advantage, uh, take advantage of those trips. Um, now, the kind, the kind of stories that actually I really found funny were the more sort of personal stories. Uh, for example, Bob uh, Iariscu um who played in uh, Toronto and was transferred uh, without his knowledge to the New York Cosmos um and he t- he, t- he told the story of how outraged he was he got the call orders in his mother's kitchen and and uh, he got the call from Eddie Fermani saying oh we've just signed you you're flying to New York tomorrow and he was so outraged he called up his the, the club president and swore at him and he thought that he'd been sold because he'd negotiated a, a couple of thousand extra dollars on his contract that year, which was still something below $6,000 a year. So he went off to New York with his agent. Well, he didn't really have an agent, but he took his his soccer mentor from his youth, a guy called Aldo, along and said, look, you know, we're not going to let uh, the Cosmos like, uh, you know, dick me over on negotiations. Like, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I, need, I need somebody to stand up for me so that I can uh, play hardball with them. So he was envisioning in his head that maybe they would offer him 8000 or something like that, and he would have to negotiate a little bit. So he, he describes how he, he, he's met at the airport in a limousine and taken to a hotel, and he bumps into Carlos Alberto, who's there because he's just signed as well, and then he has dinner with Pelé. And the next day he goes in for negotiations, and uh, they say to him, okay, this contract is, is, you know, is not negotiable. So he's like nudging his agent saying, you know, just to give him a sign, don't worry, we won't let them push us around. And they said to him, well, it's uh, 28000 in your first year, 35000 in your second year. You get a, a free apartment in New Jersey and a Toyota <laughs> the car and this and that. And he's just like, sitting there going, okay, okay, I just have to have a quick chat with my agent. So he takes Aldo outside and he sends a guy home. and goes, I don't need you here anymore. You can go. You can go. And I, I love the way he told that story. He has a very uh, engaging way of talking as well. And, uh, and 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 this was kind of typical for, uh, it, it was not only a good story, but it typified the kind of insanity of the league at the time that the Cosmos were suddenly offering these massive contracts for players who were, well, one, they weren't bad, they were maybe not uh, quite the same kind of world beaters as, as Pele and, and Carlos Alberto. And So those kind of stories, going back to Jeff Barnett, also, also told a very funny story of how he didn't sign for the Cosmos because he... Uh, uh, he, he was due to meet them at Heathrow Airport when he was an Arsenal player and the Cosmos were landing at Heathrow Airport and he was supposed to go out and sign and, and go straight off with them on, on a world tour. And he told me, he said, well, you know, the thing is my dad had, had a real thing. He taught me that, you know, you should never trust anybody who doesn't shine his shoes and wear a clean shirt. And he says, I went out to Heathrow Airport and in came all these Cosmos officials and Clive Toy." And all the rest of them, and then he sat down with the manager Gordon Bradley, and his shoes were all scuffed, and he had his shirt collar was really grubby, and, and I thought I can't, I can't play for this guy. My dad would never approve of me playing for this guy. So he said he told the guy he was with from Arsenal. He said, no, I'm, there's something wrong with this deal. I, I, I can't, I can't sign for the Cosmos, and so he he left them to go on their world tour on his own. And he told me this story because we were both killing ourselves laughing. And he said, of course, I couldn't tell anybody at the time. The reason I didn't sign for the Cosmos was because Gordon Bradley had dirty shoes. It's only a story you can really tell 30 years later. And and that was, uh, what, of course, one of the reasons I thought writing the book at that kind of a time distance is that people are – very much more prepared to open up and tell the truth about what, what happened back in that time. And, and I think the book really benefited from the openness of a lot of players who, who who thought it was a good time to tell their stories. And they were actually very glad that somebody was attempting to to write a book uh, that appreciated the league and which put it in its uh, historical context.
1: Uh, near the end of your book, obviously, as you uh, describe <clears throat> and sort of uh, hint at sort of how the, uh, how the league was... Uh, soon to collapse upon itself. Um it's an interesting sort of theme in, in here, and, and I, I wonder, I'd love to hear your sort of your theory about it, right? So you use the word myth and memories, right, in, in your chapter nine about the Cosmos and the Philadelphia Fury and you know, the the rock and roll lifestyle. And and yeah, make no mistake, there was there was this intersection uh in the late 70s of uh of music, uh the music industry, right, uh, and this league, right? Whether it's Elton John and Los Angeles or um you know Paul Simon and um, uh, Peter Frampton and uh, and their crowd in, in in Philadelphia. Obviously the Warner Communications crowd and the average white band who I'm trying to get on this show actually to explain how they put together the Cosmos theme that played uh, in the stadium every uh, every game. Uh, part of that sort of uh, crazy world. The Caribou Ranch for one year in in Denver with the Caribou of Colorado. Um, uh-huh. uh, but uh, you know the, I you, I guess you could put that in quotes. The rock and, literally the rock and roll lifestyle, but. You know, is it a mythology or is it true, right, that, you know, the free spending ways of the Cosmos and then sort of by extension, uh, a number of other clubs seeking to keep a pace uh, with high price signings and whatnot? I mean, I think the popular legend is that spending got out of control. Uh, There was not enough revenues nor television money at that time to support that. And frankly, there was not a lot of grassroots efforts, uh, save for a few uh, early days and early missions. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just wondering if if you think it was that sort of high spending lifestyle that uh, kind of got out of uh, got out of itself. Yeah, was it I, 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 absolutely,
2: the no, there's no question about that. Tim, that was the that's the point at which the the, the rock and roll. Metaphor uh, really works much better than than talking about uh, the, the lifestyles or the, the drinking and the drug taking and all the rest of it. Um, what what I really came to understand why why I called the book this to start with was exactly for the reasons you described, that the the whole um, phenomenon the wheels kind of came off a little bit like uh, you know it was it was very much like a crash and burn kind of league. It, it suddenly rose spectacularly and the cosmos and the league itself very much like you you, you see in the pop world where a, an artiste or a band suddenly becomes like a huge thing and it's filling stadiums and everybody's talking about them. And then the whole thing dived and crashed just as quickly as you might find, again, in the rock and roll world if a star overdoses or suddenly uh, goes bankrupt because they were cleaned out by their management team or because they hit a creative black wall and suddenly could write songs no longer. And the sad thing, I think, about the NASL is, is, uh, is there's a very prosaic... Document published in 1977 by several of the league's executives about the best way forward for the league. And it was a very rational and um, sensible set out of what the league needed to do to survive. And unfortunately, it was ignored by Phil Woosnam, who was on a course of expansion in his enthusiasm to get as many people on board as possible and expanded the league too quickly. And many of these new owners were looking at the Cosmos, were looking at Pele, were looking at big stars, overspent, and uh, found that their investments were being sucked uh, into a black hole and that the the soccer was not going to make them rich as they'd hoped. And that ended up dragging down the league. Um, and into extinction over the course of a few short years. So in that respect, the, the rock and roll analogy is quite apposite. And you mentioned the Philadelphia Fury, which uh, lasted for three years, uh, the Peter Frampton, Paul Simon, and Rick Wakeman vehicle. And uh, that, was, that was a classic case. They, they put a lot of money into a team that was just frankly really poor and uh, didn't attract crowds, because not only did they not play exciting soccer or win many games, they didn't even really have the rock and roll lifestyle to go with it and it, may, it might have actually helped if some of their players had gone out and and, and and caroused a little bit more on the town and got some bad publicity. Um, so it, in that in that sense the, the Philadelphia Fury was was kind of like a, a, almost more a better example of the league's crash and burn policy than, than the Cosmos because at least the Cosmos had uh, uh, had well, they had Warner Brothers behind them covering all their losses, so they they weren't quite in the same situation as all the other teams. But um, yeah, and and it's that and, and but it, at the same time, looking back, it's that kind of rock and roll image of the league, which makes it such a kind of even a little bit sexy to look back at compared with say i don't know what uh, the you know the, the italian second division in the 1970s i mean who, who, who knows who knows what was going on there it was it was a terrific story uh, it was a terrifically interesting phenomenon the whole league at the time and as i said at the start of uh, of our conversation it was also really um influential on, on the world game. Now, the, again, I've, I've, I've met some resistance to to that theory, which is ab- absolutely fine. I'm prepared to admit it's only a theory. But I still can't help but, but thinking of the NASL, every, every time I see the way that the Champions League and the Premier League are now presented to us with this massive hype um Always emphasis on the stars and the big names. The the constant attempt to to sell themselves and sell their games to an ever, ever wider audience. And I think if the NASL had happened a few years later, if it had had the luck to have got in on uh, cable television and got itself a. a a good TV deal, that it would have been uh, a much more viable economic and business proposition for the, for the people who'd invested in it. Because if you look at the names, um, Pele, Beckenbauer, Johan Cruyff, Gerd Müller, George Best, uh, Carlos Alberto, Giorgio Chinaglia, all those players saying, playing in the same league at the same time, if there had been uh, the kind of global television network uh, then that there is now, uh, that that would have been a, a, a massive uh, incentive to for people around the world to to have watched that league.
1: So coming out of this project, uh, first of all, do you think there's a documentary or two in here, right? So you mentioned the Cosmos documentary, which you know to me was uh, sort of uh, heaven, right? Because I grew up watching the Cosmos as a kid and some very fond memories. But but indeed, you know, the narrative was, you know, a lot of it's about you know Giorgio and sort of you know the heavy handedness and. You know, maybe he was part of the 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 Iron Fist that kind of brought this team down. But, you know, I, I wonder I, what I've yet to see, though, is anything that, uh, um, you know, kind of really does a a decent treatment. And frankly, I think the the twists and turns and the visuals right of of the journey of the North American soccer league, I think at least in some sports cable history kind of segment uh, would be very interesting, especially. And this is this leads me to also to a legacy question. Um when you finally see major league soccer here in this country actually reaching back uh not necessarily fully and genuinely but you know the fact that a number of teams are are uh named after or uh or and and seemingly continuations of teams that came in the 70s in the North American Soccer League right so Seattle and Portland and San Jose and Vancouver and you know the New York Cosmos and the in the uh, rebooted North American Soccer League the Tampa Bay Rowdies these names have come back and it's very interesting to sort of see how uh, a new generation of fans uh, kind of want to know, like, where this team name and, and all the history, very little of it that, that's known, uh, you know, started from and, and what sort of led it to what it, what it, what's around now. I guess my question is twofold. One, do you think there's any uh, further work in your world, uh, either written or in a documentary form? And number two, uh, you know, how much of a legacy do you sort of see uh, from this league, uh, short and brief and exciting as it was? uh, in what is now American and, or the world stage.
2: I think, I think that you could definitely make a a fantastic documentary series about the, about the NASL, um, Somebody was supposedly interested in buying the the movie rights to the book when it was first published, <laughs> briefly raising my hopes and vast amounts of Hollywood fortunes. But uh, that that trail dried up uh, very quickly, needless to say.
1: Ah, well, let's um, use this conversation hopefully with our listeners. And I'm always surprised, by the way, Ian, about, about our listeners and who listens and and the influence uh, that these folks have. All right, so let's let's uh, put a marker in that. All right, let's reheat this conversation because uh, I think. It's not just Ian and I saying this. This is absolutely a league and a story that will not disappoint uh, from a documentary perspective or hell, even from a, you know, even a, 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 a you know, a, a, a creative kind of license approach too.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And the other thing you talk about, the, the legacy, uh, I, I think it was a real shame that the Major League Soccer shunned uh, the NASL to start with at least and and – I can understand that the reasons it did that was because it wanted a new start and it wanted to promote stability and it didn't want to be seen to be associated with the excesses and the, uh, I guess, the more irrational um, side of the NASL. At the same time, as you pointed out, for example, in Pacific Northwest, there's three teams that the, the MLS finally took on board and which it prov- proved uh, to be a massive boost to the league in terms of interest and attendances. And the interest in that area of the country never went away and has always been there because of uh, the legacy of the NASL. And again, this goes right back to the players in the early 70s who worked really hard to to put the game out and to publicize the game and to, and to make it really popular. And that really, really endured in that part of the country. So when you talk about the NASL legacy, that's just one of several examples, but it's the one that always strikes me first. There's a soccer culture that was created by the NASL and which... Endured until the uh, I mean those teams uh, survived in various formats. Uh, I think maybe playing semi-pro at least until they were taken up by Major League Soccer and gave Major League Soccer a, a real boost. So um, the legacy of, of the NASL is. Uh, I remember when I played in, in, in Washington DC. I ran an old man's uh, over thirty-five team, and I was forever bumping into players who would talk about, there were players of my age, and they would talk about their first experiences of soccer were with the Washington diplomats, going to watch the Washington diplomats in RFK in the 1970s and see, seeing Johan Cruyff play for the, for the diplomats and their interest had stayed ever since, even through the Barron period in between leagues and uh, when it seemed that the, the domestic game in the US had, had crashed and, and was not going to be revived. So um the NASL is, is it wasn't the first professional league in the US there was the, the, the I think the American Soccer League in the 19 and the 1930s uh, that that uh, uh, went same way as the NASL did but I think the the NASL was the first national coast to coast league and that was what has made it uh, to me a, a kind of stand out as 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 the really the true beginning point of of soccer in America as a, as a nationwide phenomenon. And that's what, uh, when, and I always used to laugh in, in, in England when I went back and um, people would say to me, well, this, is soccer ever going to catch on in America? And I tell you, you just have to drive around the suburbs on a, a spring evening and every single spare bit of grass you will see there are kids playing soccer there so many leagues there's so many tournaments weekend after weekend it's a, it already is it's already caught on in america a long time ago it's already a massive sport there and 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 that i, I think a huge amount of credit goes to phil phil woosnam and the north american soccer league
1: Fascinating stuff. Our uh, thanks again to Ian Plunderleaf. And uh, let's see the book. Uh, we need to uh, remind you early and often. It's called Rock and Roll Soccer, The Short Life and Fast Times of the North American Soccer League, uh, forwarded by Rodney Marsh. And uh, the forward alone is uh, is well worth the price of admission. Uh, that book is uh, available, of course, on our website uh, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search for episode number 49. You'll see a quick link to that book, obviously, through Amazon, and we'll get a little scratch for that if you buy the book through there. Uh, But it is published by uh, Thomas Dunn Books, which itself is an imprint of St. Martin's Press. Uh, It came out in 2014, I believe, and um, depending on the version that you find, you will likely find uh, a very cool cover. Uh, a picture or so on it. There are a couple of different versions of that, but, uh, depending on the version that you find, you will find a picture of George Best or Rodney Marsh on there. There's another one that's got, uh, Elton John holding a soccer ball as he, uh, surveys his, uh, newly acquired Los Angeles Aztecs team, uh, some, and some great photography in this, in this book, of course. But the stories, um, they literally just scratch the surface of, of what the NASL was all about. And, and this book is, uh, uh an essential uh, read uh, it is a fun read you will not find it a chore by any means and uh you will uh scratch your head going wow uh, that really happened uh, and indeed it did and uh again i can't recommend this book enough again called rock and roll soccer uh by our friend ian plenderleith and we look forward to staying in touch with him and uh let us uh try to make it uh some kind of uh Possibility here, where somebody either in the world of documentary uh, documentary films, he says, uh, or uh, frankly just in uh, in Hollywood generally, who might want to uh, uh, per- perhaps put some storylines in a uh, creative way. Uh, the 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 league of the North American Soccer League and the people and the uh, the, the just the, the the stories and and all of that stuff are are just hard to believe. Number one, number two, uh, still not uh, fully. Known and uh, I think there's some a lot of other sort of latent stories out there and and interesting little tidbits that uh, we have yet to discover and hopefully we'll find out a few more of those as we go along in our little journey. But uh, perhaps somebody in the uh, in the uh, film world might uh, take a light to the story that uh, Ian's penned and perhaps uh, go a little bit further with it and we encourage that. So uh, by all means, uh, let's uh, if you want to contact Ian, just of course you can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find an email link to us. We can certainly hook you, hook you up, and get you connected uh, after you read the book. Uh, in uh, addition, of course, on our website you will find all of our social links, and on Twitter you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on uh, Instagram you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. You can follow us there. Also on Facebook there's a page devoted to us as well. There's you know no. Uh, no excuse not to be able to at least follow us on a, on a regular basis on social media. And we appreciate that, uh, uh, those follows and that uh, interconnection uh, with you uh, you great fans out there uh, early and often. We appreciate that. Um, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to get a couple of other ways to support the show. We'll probably get a little Patreon page going. Uh, we'll probably get some... Uh, some other uh, commerce and some other advertising opportunities coming up too, so be on the listen for that. And again, last but not least, we want to thank our friends at Podfly Productions for their uh, their efforts in putting all of our little pieces together into something that's somewhat coherent and uh, giving you uh, something nice to listen to. Uh, Eric Begay and Corey Coates, David Gregerson, and yes, he is literally a doctor. I'm not gonna, I can't explain what kind of doctor he is, but Jerry Payne, Dr. Jerry Payne our inimitable uh, editor and producer uh, doing yeoman's like work uh, for us as always here on the show so thank you so much to everybody at podfly and that's podfly.net by all means check them out if you want to get podcasting yourselves and tell them that we sent you will you that'll help us too and and i'm sure you're going to be uh, impressed with their uh, their capabilities and uh and their friendliness too. All right. That uh, does it for me. I appreciate your listening. Uh, We ramble on no more. And uh, we look forward to talking to you sometime next week with another fun-filled episode. Thanks for listening. We love you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.